Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. Here's the thing now. You have been in an organization that deals basically with the same type of work that we do. Military intelligence. You know damn well that we work on real close information. On minute detail. Yet you're not filling us in on minute details. And these are the things that we've got to know. We want to know. I don't know why you're doing it. I don't know what your reason is. But I'll tell you right now, it's not good. We're done playing cat and mouse. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to talk to a lawyer and have him present with you while you are being questioned. If you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you. You can decide any time to exercise these rights. Do you wish to exercise any of them now? No. I've got nothing to hide. Those statements were taken directly from one of the many interrogations with prime suspect Joe Scalaro. Investigators Lloyd Stearns and John Fliss had confiscated a pair of Scalaro's boots. They were brand new, no traces of blood or dirt, or anything really, but they matched the bloody shoe print found at the crime scene. The lab tech concluded Scalaro's shoes hadn't been at the crime scene. However, Stearns and Fliss knew, as did many others, that Joe Scalaro had a habit of buying two of everything. We could have worn an identical pair to commit the crime, then trashed them. Not only did Scalaro's shoe match the bloody footprint, but he also had no real alibi for the day and night of the murder. Not to mention, he may have been responsible for embezzling $60,000 from R.C. Robison and Associates' ad agency, where he worked closely with Richard Robison. As Richard's right-hand man, Scalaro was the only other person who had access to the company account. And now... As investigators honed in on their most alluring suspect, they were about to embark on a hunt, this time for the weapons used to kill the entire Robison clan. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our final episode on the Robison family murder. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm Carter Roy. Now, back to the troubling case of the Robison family murders. The evening of June 25th, 1968. The setting? Somerset Cabin, built right on Lake Michigan, near the town of Goodhart. The Robison family of six was enjoying a night in. Parents Richard and Shirley were relaxing in armchairs, their youngest son Randall beside them. Their only daughter Susie was on the floor playing. The eldest sons, Richie and Gary, were engaged in a game of double solitaire at a table. What had started as a scene that could rival the best Norman Rockwell painting ended in a tragic and horrific tableau. 
It was a crime that shattered the image of the idyllic cabin community of Blisswood, which was created as an escape from the dangers of the city. But sadly, the world the Robisons thought they had left behind came crashing into the world they hoped to enjoy. And people needed to know why. Because if peace and safety were no longer a guarantee, Blisswood and the town of Goodhart no longer promised the perfect getaway or the secure community that it was known for. And so, lead detective Stearns and Fliss were on a mission, well, not just for justice itself, but also to save the town of Goodhart and its wholesome reputation. All right, next question. Do you own any guns? Yes. What are they? I own a 25 caliber Beretta, a nine-shot semi-automatic. When did you purchase this gun? Last spring. And how did you come to own this gun? I bought it and another Beretta from a friend, and 100 round Sacco brand ammunition. A second gun? Same make and model? Yes, but it wasn't for me. Who was it for? It was for Dick. He wanted it for personal protection. Why? He was unsettled after the Detroit riots. When did you give Mr. Robinson the gun? Right after I purchased it. So it would be in his possession? I imagine so. Joe Scalaro didn't pass his lie detector test with flying colors. In fact, he failed. He also mentioned another gun, his Armalite AR-7 survival rifle. Well, that was given away to his brother-in-law, Scalaro said. Now, why is all this talk of guns important? Because several bullets fired from a handgun and a rifle were found at the crime scene. But unfortunately, only one bullet fired from the handgun wasn't too damaged that it could be used for testing. So, Stearns and Fliss collected Joe's gun, the 25 caliber Beretta, to be tested at the crime lab in Lansing. But they couldn't find Richard's gun that Scalaro had supposedly bought for him. They checked the cabin, the two family cars, and even the Robison home. In the meantime, Hugh Fish at the crime lab tested the Beretta against the 25 caliber bullet. This is the conclusion that he came to. The bullet was fired from a gun with a signature of six lands and grooves, possibly with a left twist. Well, that's just fancy gun speak for the particular marks a gun leaves on the bullet it fires. Right, a gun signature is basically like its unique fingerprint. So, was Scalaro's gun a match? The 25 caliber fired bullets and shells exhibit class characteristics similar to the 25 automatic caliber Beretta pistol allegedly received from Mr. Scalero. However, the individual characteristics are dissimilar and this weapon is apparently not involved. Okay, so Fish's report detailed that there wasn't enough evidence to confidently say Scalero's gun was the murder weapon? Correct, but there was much more to the report. Fish said that even though Scalaro's gun wasn't a match, Richard's Beretta, the one Scalaro bought for him, could be. And where was Richard's Beretta? Still missing. However, there was another gun to consider. If you'll recall, shells fired from a rifle were also found at the crime scene. So Stearns and Fliss were also looking for that gun. And thus began the epic gun hunt for the Beretta and the rifle. It wouldn't be easy, it wouldn't be small, it wouldn't be short-lived. Well, this was the northern Michigan woods, remember? And everyone, I repeat, everyone owned a gun. 
Chauncey Monty Bliss, the groundskeeper of the Blisswood cabins, was asked to turn over all of his guns. So was his carpenter aide, Steve Shenaniket. None were a match. Vandals using 22 caliber Remington Peters rifles to destroy mailboxes were investigated along with their 10 guns. No match. The gardener for the Robison's Somerset cabin turned over his gun. A fellow neighbor of the Robison's offered up his 22 Winchester. All of the cabin owners of Blisswood were asked to do the same. None of these guns was a match. Not one. And it wasn't just the guns that were checked. Bullets made it into the lab as well. This included a fired 22 caliber bullet discovered in a woman's purse that had washed up on the Lake Michigan shore. And on and on it went. Ammunition from 53 guns was checked. Nothing came of it. So... The search cooled for a while, that is, until 1969, about a year and a half after the murder had first occurred. Stearns and Fliss spotted Scalaro at a makeshift target range on property that belonged to Scalaro's father-in-law. It was six acres of open fields. This gave them an idea and a new angle. They decided to interview Scalaro's brother-in-law, Herbert Johnson. Johnson was a gun dealer. He had sold Scalaro the AR-7 rifle. But he was also the man Scalaro said he had given the rifle to. So Johnson was in possession of the missing rifle? No, he wasn't. Uh. And this is where it gets interesting. After Stearns and Fliss made initial contact with Johnson, they visited him again, and the subject turned to the rifle in question. Note that some of this conversation is taken verbatim from historical account, specifically from Marty Link's book, When Evil Came to Goodhart. Mr. Johnson, did Mr. Scolaro ever mention anything about the rifle coming back to you? Yeah. When was this? Just the other day, after you first came by to talk to me. What did he say about that? He told me, I told those people that you got the gun back. Don't you remember? I traded it back for some components. And what did you say? I kept my mouth shut. I wasn't about to start BSing with him about it. Do you keep records of all your sales and returns? Of course. It's the law. Can we see them? It's a double check system, see? I log it in here, customer's name, the serial number of the gun, whether it was a trade or a straight sale. Thank you. That's helpful. You know... There might be something else. Yes? About a month after I'd sold Joe the gun, we both went to the range. When was this? Sometime in 1967. We drove to our father-in-law's place and we wanted to see how the AR-7 would fire. We shot 50 shells. It fired pretty good. Do you think the brass might still be there? Oh, it would definitely be there, but it'd probably be a job finding it. Would you be willing to show us? Shh. Yes. And so, on November 12th and 13th of 1969, Stearns and Fliss began their arduous search through the calf-high grass of the outdoor range. They marked off sections to hone their search and went over the ground with a metal detector. All in all, the men found 21 shell casings that seemed to have been shot from an AR-7. The next morning, Stearns delivered them all to the crime lab. A few days later, the results were in. At least five of the shells found in the field were fired from the same weapon as the 22 caliber shells from the crime scene. Bingo. There was the link to Joe Scalaro. The icing on the cake. 
Now it was time to procure an arrest warrant for Scalaro. But before that, Stearns and Fliss would have to craft a report, one that would hopefully convince Emmett County Prosecutor Donald Noggle and Attorney General Frank Kelly to grant that warrant. This also would be an uphill battle. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. The men put together a 300-page document, including all the details of the case, lab and autopsy reports, ballistics results, polygraph tests, and interviews. Stearns and Fliss delivered it by hand the week leading up to the Christmas holiday. It sat on Prosecutor Donald Noggle's desk for weeks. When he and Attorney General Frank Kelly got around to reading it, They called for a meeting with Stearns and Fliss and several other state officers. As the report documents, Mr. Scalaro has failed three lie detector tests, he is not able to account for 11 hours the day of the murders, and he had strong financial motive. He also knew where the Robison cabin was located. And as I'm sure you've asserted, the gun evidence is quite strong. According to Herbert Johnson's records, Scalaro never returned the rifle which means he must have it or know where it is. The rifle is believed to be one of the murder weapons. That's all well and good, but this is much too circumstantial. What this report doesn't do is place Mr. Scalero at the crime scene at the time of the murders. We need that or an actual confession from Mr. Scalero. I agree with Donald. Issuing a warrant at this juncture would be premature. Premature? With all that evidence? It seems crazy, doesn't it? In fact, more than once, police corruption has been blamed for this decision to hold off on an arrest warrant. Well, another theory is that there wasn't enough money in the Emmett County budget to afford to prosecute against anyone at the time. Who knows what the real reason was? But one thing was certain. Stearns and Fliss weren't happy. They had poured over evidence for over a year and a half of investigative work to produce a thorough and coherent report only to have it be dismissed by the higher-ups. And so, while the crusade against Joe Scalaro seemed to hit a road bump, Stearns and Fliss attempted another angle in their investigation. They looked deeper into victim Richard Robison's life. What they found was quite mystifying. First of all, associates of Richard described him in similar and surprising ways. He had like a split personality. He was kind of a tyrant. How would you describe Mr. Robison? Uh, brilliant. Very magnetic, and he was very sincere in his religious faith. He also went through several secretaries in the years he ran the ad agency. The turnover was frequent. 
There were rumors that he had engaged in a few affairs with some of these women. One of these was Wanda Hensley. She worked for Richard from 1963 to 1965, much longer than his previous secretaries. He had made several strange and awkward advances. I rebuffed them all. What kind of advances? He'd ask me to stay late after everyone else in the office had left. He'd invite me into his office and lock the door. He'd ask me all kinds of questions. Questions about what? My sex life. Then he'd start to make a move, but he'd stop right before like he was nervous or something. Then he'd apologize. Wanda eventually married a much older man who was known to be jealous and possessive of her. Could Wanda's husband have known about her boss's sexual advances and taken his anger out on Richard and his entire family because of it? There doesn't seem to be much evidence that would support that idea, but it is interesting to note. While Richard carried around the secret of his late-night meeting with Wanda, there was another, much more puzzling secret he kept close to the chest. Literally, after Richard's death, coroners found a peculiar object on a chain around his neck a gold medallion with an image of St. Christopher. But it was the inscription on the back that would prove the most intriguing. It read, Richard, to my chosen son and heir, God bless you, Robert. Just to be clear, that's Robert, spelled R-O-E-B-E-R-T, not Robert. Such an odd name. When family members were given Richard's personal effects, they didn't recognize the medallion or the name Robert. But as detectives looked into Richard's business dealings, they started to find a link between this mystery Robert and a multi-million dollar investment it seemed that Richard was about to make. It was believed that after the Robisons enjoyed their Somerset cabin, they were going to Florida and Kentucky to purchase some real estate. And someone was supposed to go with them. There was a man who would be taking the family on his private jet. No name of this man was provided to authorities, only that he was to be part of the family trip. Could Robert have been this person? Furthermore, who was he really? And was there any way he could have been the killer? In the midst of these questions, detectives found an odd six-page letter in Richard's desk drawer. In it, Richard rambles on and on to Robert about automobiles and car allowances granted to some of his employees at Empresario, the magazine Richard published. Here is an excerpt from that letter. Well, don't be surprised if you don't understand it at all. We didn't either. Now. A favorite story of mine was the one where a fellow arrived at work excited about the tremendous collision that must have taken place on the company's corner earlier. No one was aware of it, but he insisted a Mustang and a Thunderbird had to have hit head-on because there were feathers and horse manure all over the place. Now, it should prove in the future most interesting to see whether we have a similar mess strewn about the halls of Ola Presario via Ted the Mustang and Ernie the Thunderbird. It will be interesting to see if Wonderful Steamboat has a keen sense of smell. It seems that Richard was using the cars as a metaphor, but still, we just can't crack it. Richard ends the letter by saying, I'm looking forward with great anticipation and love to the day when we finally meet. Soon, I hope. Always, your son, Richard. The letter was addressed to Robert. What's so strange is that Richard's father was actually named Ross Robison. So what could this mean? Unfortunately, detectives were left wondering, and they also began to question Richard's sanity. 
could he have concocted this Robert character up in his mind and have actually written to a non-existent person? And could he have even inscribed the St. Christopher medallion himself, pretending it was from his so-called father? Years later, investigators found out that Richard had been adopted as an infant. So Robert may have actually been the biological father he tracked down, or the father that he created out of desperation and possible psychosis. But it seems we'll never know. Just another odd piece in this puzzling mosaic. And it was about to get stranger. In 1973, five years after the murder, Stearns and Fliss were communicating with a man by the name of Ronald Kovalt. He was the chief assistant to the Oakland County Prosecutor. The two investigators wanted another opinion on Joe Scalaro and whether or not they had enough evidence for an arrest warrant. Kovalt thought they did, and so did his boss. With the help of Kovalt, Stearns and Fliss were ready to circumvent Prosecutor Noggle's decision and go after Joe Scalaro on their own. At this point, a year and a half after Stearns and Fliss were denied that arrest warrant, Joe Scalaro was no longer working at the ad agency and was struggling financially. Not to mention in his personal life. He was unable to fly under the radar due to increased media attention surrounding the case. So he was living in the shadow of the investigation, believed by many to be the killer of the Robisons. Some believe that a friend at the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office tips Scalaro off that there may be an arrest warrant coming, but it's unclear if this really happened. On May 8, 1973, five years after the murders, Scalaro's mother, who was living with him at the time, returned home from an errand. Uh, what? Joe? Hi, Mrs. Scalaro. Beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, I suppose. Everything all right? It's just this note right here on the door. It's from Joe. Let me see. What's it mean? Oh, my. Okay. You just stay right there. I'll go inside. Joe? Hey, Joe, you in here? Joe? Oh, Lord. Joe? Joe? Just stay right there, Mrs. Scalero. Don't come in. The note posted to the door read, Mother, don't you come in. I will already be dead. Please have someone else come in and you call the police or whatever. Signed, Joe. Scalaro's body was found in his office. He was slumped over at his desk. A bullet had gone through his right temple, out his left, and into a glass picture on the wall. Scalaro had used his 25 caliber Beretta to commit suicide. He was 37. When officers reported to the scene, they found another note. This one was much more detailed. Mother, where do I start? I am a liar, cheat, phony. I owe everybody you can think of. I've made poor investments, and in some cases, no investments at all. I love you dearly, but living only causes you more heartache. I know I'm sick, but seeking help isn't going to help the people I've hurt. I just can't help myself. Please understand. Love, Joe. 
P.S. I had nothing to do with the Robisons. I'm a cheat, but not a murderer. I'm sick and scared. God and everyone, please forgive me. I hope my family will understand. Well, this note was heavily analyzed. Well, Joe's reference to his poor investments led authorities to review Scalaro's finances. It seemed he had several unpaid debts. But there are really just two significant parts of this letter. The first is that Scalaro says he was not responsible for the killing of the Robisons. The other is that he admits to being a liar and a phony. Right. His opening statement basically negates his statement of innocence. And potentially everything he wrote in that letter. If you admit to being a liar, anything you then say could be interpreted as just that, a lie. And that is the paradox of Joe's suicide note. It is said that the day Joe Scalaro put a bullet in his head is the day the Robison family case was solved. He was the prime suspect, after all, and he may have killed himself because he felt the cops closing in. Or he may have been so overwhelmed by the media attention and the case itself that he felt he had no choice but to end his life. Well, it's not necessarily an admission of guilt. Well, that's true. And yet, it's very suggestive of guilt. Mm. Well, with the prime suspect dead, the case was temporarily halted, but never completely stopped. In fact, another suspect emerged. And this suspect was already incarcerated for murder. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now, the story continues. The new suspect in the Robison family murder was named John Norman Collins, but he was more commonly referred to as the co-ed killer. Between 1967 and 1969, seven college girls were murdered in and around Ann Arbor, Michigan. 20-year-old Collins, who stalked university campuses for his victims, was believed to be their killer. However, he was only convicted in one murder. That was the case of Karen Sue Bynaman. When Collins was sentenced to life imprisonment at the Marquette Branch Prison. He now goes by the name John Chapman. So how did a man responsible for a college girl's death and suspected of many others become a suspect in the murder of the Robisons? Going after an entire family with guns? Not exactly what Collins was known for. That's right. His M.O. featured preying on young girls and killing by means of stabbing and strangulation. But there is something that links Collins to the Robisons, if not their murder. He and Richard Jr., the eldest child of the Robison clan, knew each other. Ah, yes, they both attended Eastern Michigan University. They may have even been roommates or fraternity brothers at one point. Collins was briefly investigated as a suspect in the Robison murders, but nothing ever came of it. However, novelist Judith Guest, famous for writing Ordinary People, explored this theory extensively in her thriller entitled The Tarnished Eye. Fascinated by the Robison murders and the co-ed killer, Guest penned a fictionalized account of both of these stories, tying them together. Some still believe that Collins was the real mastermind behind the Robison family murders. There just doesn't seem to be enough evidence to support that theory. Yes. It feels like all the evidence lies with Joe Scalaro. Maybe, in some way, he took the case with him to the grave. That may be, but don't think for a second that the investigators gave up. 
No, in fact, authorities were so determined, or maybe the right word is desperate, to get some closure on this case that they were willing to try anything to get a new lead. So in 1969, Emmett County Sheriff Zink and Fossmore tried something a little out of the ordinary. They welcomed a known psychic to take a crack at the case. Her name was B. Ann Gayman, and she was a good heart local. You've been doing this a while, haven't you? Since I was 15. Found a lot of people, have you? Some, and lost pets too. The spot's right up here. Thank you. I'd like to walk around the grounds alone, if you don't mind. It will be easier for me to receive the vibrations. Yes, of course. Take your time. After exploring the site where the Somerset cabin once stood, Gaiman returned to Sheriff Zink and Fossmore. I believe that a riding stable, a church, and a yacht harbor are involved with these murders. And that was it. Well, sadly, nothing ever came of these revelations. But it proves just how creative authorities were willing to get. They were ready to try anything if it meant the people of Goodhart could finally get some closure. And that the victims could have some form of justice. But the case remains open today and the search continues. Emmett County Police still accept anonymous tips. In terms of the state of the investigation, Pete Wallen, current sheriff of Emmett County, put it this way. We're not likely to arrest people. Our mission now is closure and that the outcome is a final end. And there's a bit of folklore associated with the town of Goodhart that makes the unsolved murders even more macabre. Yes, there's a sharp curve on the M119 highway called Devil's Elbow. Well, it's said that after Ottawa Indians were wiped out by smallpox, the devil scooped out a huge chunk of land, creating a deep gully. Some still maintain to this day that the region is cursed and that an evil spirit haunts the area. Well, the death of the Robisons didn't help, I'm sure. Whether the curse is real or not, those involved with the Robison investigation have all taken some darkness with them. Detective Stearns still suffers from a stomach ulcer, he said, began during those early days on the case. Sheriff Zink died of cancer in 1990 at the age of 58. Clifford Fossmore, Zink's undersheriff, died fairly young at age 50. The case itself has passed through the hands of several different sheriffs who have all tried to explore it in a new or fresh way. Sheriff Wallen had this to say about the famed Robison family murders. Things were pretty simple back then, and we didn't have the capability of dealing with a case like that. If that crime happened today, with the resources we have now, it'd be solved, no question. So, was it simply the limitations of the time that have prevented the case from being solved? Well, it probably was a strong factor, but we can't ignore the fact that the prime suspect, Joe Scalaro, was never issued an arrest warrant. Oh, this still irks me. I mean, from my vantage point, there was more than enough evidence to arrest and even convict him. People still wonder if someone high up on the judicial chain was protecting Scalaro for some reason. Or perhaps had something to do with the actual murders. Regardless, our vote is for Scalaro as the murderer. He had ample motive. Money. He even alluded to his financial woes in his suicide note. But also in the suicide note, he referred to himself as a liar before claiming he had nothing to do with harming the Robisons. His timeline for the day and night of the murder doesn't quite match up, 
and there was no one to provide a solid alibi. And all that specialized military training he had? Not to mention the fact that he had bought two guns and one of them was missing. And we can't forget the bloody footprint that matched a boot he had in his closet. Even if we agree that Scalaro did it, there are still so many loose ends. The murder weapon has never been found. And we can't help but wonder, did Scalaro act alone or have an accomplice? And what was the real story about Robert? Who was he and did he factor into the murders at all? Amidst all this uncertainty lies a disturbing truth. On June 25, 1968, a family was murdered in their summer cabin. They had gathered together prior to their frightful end, playing, laughing, and talking, like any typical American family. They were nestled inside what they believed to be a cocoon of security and comfort. But that microcosm of idealism was soon shattered by a bullet fired from a rifle. Whoever pulled that trigger did more than kill an innocent family. He destroyed an ideal that much of humanity hopes to uphold. An ideal that creating the perfect reality can protect us from the dangers and evils that exist within the world around us. And the shattering of that dream creates an entirely new reality one of frightening uncertainty. It isn't just the crime itself that leaves us feeling hollow. It's the absence of answers. Answers that may never come up, no matter how much we keep searching. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday, we'll investigate the case of the Atlas Vampire. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is a part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and written by Jessica Mallow. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Nicholas Massu, Manu Narayan, Steve Pinto, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>